2: Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the Long Island iced bee himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy?
1: Dan, as you know, uh, last Wednesday was our debut on the Monty and the Faro YouTube channel. And I got to tell you, the reaction's been overwhelming. There's been cards, letters, emails, even telegrams, but but no Eddiegrams. Uh, <laughs> well, I even got uh, some women's panties in the mail.
2: Oh, geez. Y- you said you got What?
1: Women's panties.
2: Oh, man. Well, yeah. how'd that work out for you?
1: Well, I, I, I noticed that they were postmarked from uh, Gertrude's octogenarian rest home. So, so there's that. And I do want to dedicate this ridiculous loud shirt to, which you can see right here now, to my dear friend Patty, who uh, actually for my birthday sang me happy birthday, Mr. Commissioner, in a very Marilyn Monroe-esque style. So Patty, just like Vincent LaGuardia Gambini, I wore this ridiculous thing for you. <laughs>
2: uh, they're bringing back images of the red suit. I like it. You know, it's it's funny, Benny. You uh, you, we jest about our popularity, but the first comment on our first video was someone asking who the looker in the glasses is.
1: Did you see what her name was, though?
2: I, I don't remember.
1: It was violent slut. <laughs>
2: Well, we just got de- uh, demonetized for language. So, um, <laughs> no, we're, we're having fun, Benny. Uh, Monty and the Pharaoh have been great to us, and, and it's a nice chapter, uh, a new chapter in our, our show. And, of course, we couldn't have started better than Boogie Woogie Man, but we we move on. And, uh, Benny, we got another great guest lined up tonight. Why don't you tell everybody who's on the phone with us?
1: Absolutely. So, Dan, we've had a lot of great writers on our show in the past two and a half years, folks like Nikita Brezhnikov, Bobby Matthews. Uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg and our fellow Pro Wrestling Stories writers, Javier Ois, Jim Phillips, and J.P. Zarka. But this is a man that could arguably be called the Babe Ruth of wrestling journalism. He's written for the magazines. He's written books. And for years, he's written a, a weekly column for the uh, Charleston, South Carolina uh, Post and Courier. I've always wanted to chat with this guy. And tonight I get my wish. Mike Mooneyham, welcome to Dan and Betty in the Ring. Well, wow, I don't know
0: how I can follow that intro, and I, I really don't know how I can follow Jimmy Valiant from
1: last week. I think you're going to do just fine.
2: Yeah, we're, One we're full
0: sixty gonna... minute time limit. Let's go. <laughs> there you
2: go. We're we're going to have fun, and uh, you know, I, obviously, we uh, we got a lot lot to get to, a lot of fun stories, and we will always start the same way, and. Every question, it's the same person, uh, or excuse me, we ask the question to the same person because every answer is different. It's really kind of fascinating to us, and we like to, to start. So question, when did the wrestling bug bite you from a fan perspective, and when did you transition from fan to getting involved in the business?
0: Well, let's go back in time. It was a hot Saturday afternoon back in July of 1964. I was in my backyard tossing the football around with a couple of neighborhood buddies. And I suggested we get out of the heat for a little while and and take a break. Uh, Went inside, turned on the TV set, and lo and behold, I saw something on this grainy black and white TV that I had never witnessed before. It was like when you were watching Wizard of Oz and Dorothy landed in Oz and everything turned from black and white into this beautiful color. Here were these larger-than-life characters doing battle on my TV set. I was absolutely mesmerized, as were my two buddies. There was a 601-pound farm boy called Haystack's Calhoun and his tag team partner, Johnny Weaver, who was built then as one of the outstanding young up-and-comers in the business. And in the other corner were these dastardly foreign menaces, Aldo Bogni from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and blanco lubich from belgrade yugoslavia and they had this shady looking cane wielding manager from kentucky named homer odell oh and wow let me, you, let me tell you from that moment on i was hooked i just had to see more and during the show they advertised um the actual card was coming to county hall in charleston the following week and man you can bet i was there um it was all. It was crazy. It was sports, but these were larger than life characters, and I loved. I loved the traditional sports back then. I was a huge sports fan, even at that age. But uh, this was something entirely off the chart, and I had to. I knew I had to see more, and uh, I can remember my first live show like it was yesterday.
1: So, Mike, at what point did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? And specifically for professional wrestling?
0: Well, you know, I'd always loved the printed word. I loved the smell of print, the feel of print, everything about it. Um, I had a set of world book encyclopedias by the time I was in first or second grade. And I could, I could tell you the capitals of every state in the country and most countries in the world. Um, also loved reading comic books and sports magazines. Um, I collected baseball and football cards and I could recite the stats and tell you, you could show me just a little piece of the card and I could tell you who it was. Um, so, you know, of course I started devouring wrestling magazines and uh, I started writing for wrestling magazines not long after I became a fan. And, um, you know, you got to realize I wasn't even a teenager, but I, but I had a little lighting ability even at that age. And I started corresponding with fellow wrestling fans throughout the country and uh, getting a broader understanding of how the business worked. Um, and it wasn't long after that I started sending in submissions for publications like Matt Mania, which back then was this tremendous precursor to what would eventually be known as newsletters. And next it was newsstand magazines like Wrestling Review, The Ring Wrestling, uh, Boxing Illustrated Wrestling News, and a couple others. Um, I even had press cards, which allowed me to cover shows and gave me a certain amount of access. Um, I covered wrestling shows from Charleston to Charlotte to Savannah, Atlanta, Miami Beach. And I don't think the magazines even realized how young I was at the time. Um, I, it was crazy. I remember when I was writing my first book, one of the editors compared my experiences to uh, to those that have that 15-year-old boy who loved rock music and Cameron Crowe's uh, autobiographical movie, uh, almost famous. And then, um, you know, that kid was hired to write an article for Lone Stone magazine became sort of a groupie. Uh, in my case, I earned my first byline in the national wrestling magazine when uh, I believe I was just 11 years old. I was sort of an enterprising stringer, even at that age. I remember being in Atlanta, uh, at the time with my parents, and we were in uh, the restaurant at the very top of the hotel and there was a newsstand there with magazines i started looking through one of the magazines and there was my byline that was that was pretty exciting stuff for a kid
1: how did, how did you were how were you able to get get the uh, the point of entry though Mike into the magazines
0: uh i just started um sending in a lot of submissions oh and. I guess I guess they were presentable cuz you know they sent me they sent me press cards. I think I still got a couple of the old ones like from wrestling review and ring wrestling um, and you know I was I was going to the weekly matches here locally at County Hall in Charleston and then I began venturing out and uh you know for for that definitely age of kayfabe, I got a little bit of access and uh, you know, met some promoters and stuff like that. And I, you know, they could trust me. I was never going to, um, you know, my stuff back then, like in all magazines, it was strictly kayfabe. And, you know, if you want to jump into the next chapter of my life, um, all of this actually was a, uh, was a, was a, it transformed into a full-time job in, in the newspaper business. I began a part-time job with the local paper, the Post and Courier here in Charleston back in the mid-70s. And I was still attending college at that time. Um, back then it was a menial job, but, you know, it was my foot in the door type of thing. And it wasn't long before, of course, I started bugging the editors to let me write a little. And um, they did. And I began writing on a regular basis. Uh, I started writing entertainment-based features for the paper because I also loved music back then. I was a huge music fan. It gave me the opportunity to interview a lot of the artists who came through town. And I'd even travel a place like Atlanta and Charlotte to catch your act. So I was basically living the dream, you know, even at that age. Uh, but occasionally, I'd throw in a wrestling piece. And, you know, wrestling uh, newspapers didn't really print a lot of wrestling stuff back in the day, but I'd throw in that occasional piece. And, uh, the same time I was majoring, still majoring in poli sci, uh, back in college, looking to get into law school. But after writing as many constitutional briefs as I ever wanted to, it hit me (laughs) that what I always wanted to do was write. And, uh. Yeah, I wanted to write about the stuff I liked and of all places to land, you know, here I am working at a newspaper and I think it was where I was always intended to be. I began my first full-time reporting gig with the Times and Democrat newspaper in Orangeburg, where I was promoted to an editor's position. I later got a full-time sports reporter's gig back here in Charleston at the Post and Courier. And eventually I became a sports editor for the News and Courier, which was our morning paper. You know, back then, a lot of the bigger cities had two papers, morning and afternoon papers. And uh, I worked for the morning paper at that time. But better yet, this new role enabled me to occasionally get, you know, full-length wrestling features into into my section. So... um, Fast forward a few years, uh, 1989, I was approached by our executive news editor about the possibility of me writing a weekly column on pro wrestling. I mean, this guy knew I was a resident expert on the subject. And uh, he asked me what I thought about it. And I said, yeah, man, sure, you know, but under two conditions. One, that the column would appear in our Sunday newspaper, which by far had the largest circulation. And two, that it runs specifically in our sports section, uh, not the entertainment or lifestyle section that some of the columns got stuck in. I wanted, you know, I wanted pro wrestling treated with respect, not in some uh, lifestyle section or other section of the newspaper. And that was 34 years ago, and it's still running every Sunday
1: in the sports section of our newspaper. Yeah. So, Mike, I have to ask you, though, you said your first uh, published your first uh, published article was at the age of 11. <clears throat> yeah, it was 1965. So, yeah, that'd be 11 years old. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you're in what, maybe fifth or sixth grade. What, what was it like? I mean, I'm sure you had to tell your friends like well, how did they react? Um,
0: you know, I didn't really talk much about my writing, but I can tell you. Uh, there were so many kids that would beg me to take them to the, to the wrestling matches every oh, week. Okay. Some you know, I mean, even though uh, I like wrestling when wrestling wasn't cool, you know what I mean? And definitely it was sort of, you know, in the closet back then, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but for me, uh, it was great stuff and all my friends loved it. And like I said, every Every week, I would take a different buddy to the show or different friends. And, uh, you know, that's how it was for a long time. And um, it was just, uh, you know, like I said, I was hooked from the very first voice I heard on that TV screen back in 64. And, you know, that boy, that first voice was Bob Caudle.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Um,
0: and he remains a friend today. And every time I talk to him on the phone, I hear his voice, man, and it takes me back. Almost sixty years, he in still sounds the same. It's timeless. He still sounds the same. And I go back to, I go back to that time when I first got hooked as a fan.
2: Yeah, they don't make a. The the commentary is definitely lacking in today's product.
0: It surely is. I mean, back then you had greats like Bob Caudle, Gordon Solie, uh, Lance Russell. Um, so many, so many great broadcasters, and uh, uh, that was that was part of the allure. You know, they those guys covered it. Uh, they didn't have to overhype it. You know, the product spoke for itself, but they were there to give you play by play and and treat it res- treat it respectfully. I mean, mm-hmm. they treated it. You know, you treat it as a legitimate sport, and back then that was the era of the true believer.
2: Right. Um,
0: There was a suspension of disbelief that just doesn't exist anymore.
2: Still still real to me, damn it. It's still real to me, as old Dave says. (laughs) Yep. You you know, you you made the comment, uh, there's no heat in the business. And we've talked about it on the show numerous times. The match quality back in the 60s and 70s wasn't, by and large, better than... You know what what modern wrestlers can do there was no uh nothing to set it completely set it apart in fact today's stars are far more athletic better conditioned in a lot of cases um Mm -hmm. you know i i think what made it special back then and we've talked about like i said we've talked about on the show benny and i many times is the realism the the in-ring psychology it was real enough that a heel could invoke the emotion uh, fans would sometimes, I mean, fans would bring weapons to the venue and slash tires and try and jump the barrier and go after managers. And, you know, you hear stories from everybody from uh, you know, Jim Cornette uh, to, you know, Freddie Blassie talking about the, the, the yeah. literal assaults they were victims to when, when people came in and, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that.
0: Oh, I was there. I can tell you absolutely 100%. I mean, uh, yeah, it's an entirely different product from when I started watching. um, Back then, uh, there was a real thing called heat. I mean, the heat was so thick you could cut it with a knife. But it it was the wrestler's job to be as realistic as possible. And uh, you really had to be there to appreciate it because fans were out of control in many, many cases. And I've been, I've been in the middle of near riots, uh, fans storming the ring. Uh, you know, Ole Anderson got stabbed up the road in Greenville by this 80 year old guy with a, with a knife. Uh,
2: wow. oh, like
0: Black Mulligan got cut up at Boston garden. You know, so many of these things. I remember Wahoo McDaniel told me, the most dangerous place he ever wrestled was like in Texas on the border, where they would sell they would sell beer in bottles back then. And uh, you know he got cut with beer bottles and uh, just all kind of crazy things. I remember once, well, I got hit by a shoe once. somebody was aiming at Homer Lodell who was, you know, when the the security escorted the guys back to the dressing room, and this lady, uh, she took off her shoe. Threw it, and I guess she was aiming at Homer, but she hit me with the with the shoe.
1: Jeez,
0: oh, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, you know. Today, like I said, you had to be there to really appreciate this. Back in the late '60s, I was uh, taking photographs, and you know, I was <clears throat> excuse me. Back then, I was right on the ring apron, right on the mat, and it was a it was a heated blow off between uh, George Becker and Johnny Weaver against the mask red demons and the place was absolutely packed it was one of the biggest crowds I ever saw at county hall they had to bring extra seats out and put them out on the stage the demons were hated i mean they were just absolutely despised fans went crazy well here i am taking some photos and uh i've i've got my camera and i'm right there on the ring apron and all of a sudden i i hear a thud and i look to my light and about Less than two feet away is a uh, knife stuck in the mat. And what had happened, this crazy fan up in the balcony decided to take a shot at the at the red demons because they were close to me when I was taking the photo. And, you know, I assume it was the demons and somebody not aiming for me. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, nobody knew who did it. They looked. But, you know, it, it, it came about two feet from my head. So that's how crazy and how dangerous it was um, from fans and for the wrestlers. Uh, it, I, I could I could go into so many instances, but you get the idea. Oh yeah. Um, there there was heat, and the wrestlers portrayed heat. When you saw somebody like the great Malenko against a George Scott in a Russian chain match, you you were there for blood and. You were there to see what you thought was a Russian communist guy right in the ring uh, beating the crap out of a, an American. So, you know, it was the um, it was the ethnic stuff back then, too, that draw a tremendous heat from Japanese performers, um, you know, supposed Nazis. <laughs> right. know, yeah. I mean, most of them were from Canada, the United States, but, you know. <laughs> it was a true believer for fans and, right. and they believe every, everything they
2: saw. Well, with, I mean, I think one of the things that kind of sells that we've had several wrestlers on and, and family members, uh, children and that have talked about growing up in a wrestling household was how dedicated yeah. people were to kayfabe, like, you know, keeping accents, at, when they're at the grocery store or, you know, yeah. heels and faces avoiding the same restaurants.
0: Yeah. heels. Babies and fields were not allowed to fraternize uh the the heels uh drove to the matches together together the baby faces drove to the matches together there was no no mixing at all, and they kept that line uh very clear uh you just you just didn't do that, which you know was sort of a bummer for the guys, the boys, but that's the way it was, and you just could not fraternize among you know between heels and, and baby faces.
2: You know, talking about realism and and just the experience, we've had George Shire, AWA historian extraordinaire on the show several times. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the questions we asked him regarding the claim is is, the, is we asked his thoughts on the claim that Vince McMahon made everything about wrestling bigger. You know the, the WWE loves to 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 share the story that Vince took wrestling out of the bingo halls. but my theory is, if you add the sum total weekly attendance and television viewing of the territory days, it far exceeds the viewership and attendance today. Um, I I know the the average I hear floated around is territory wrestling would draw about 30 million viewers. And that's clearly uh, what five, approximately five times more than prime time gets today. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Our opinions are on that subject.
0: Well, I'm tell you, there were more than 30 Tory territories back then, and many of the territories were running two shows a night, some three shows a night in different cities in the territory. Um, while many of the buildings were obviously smaller than the you know the big venues today, um, you can do that math and conclude that the attendance was then was significantly larger, and all of these territories were running television. And most of those shows drew very good numbers every Saturday. If you just look to places like Memphis, you know, it's top top-rated show in the market uh, on Saturdays. So, yeah, um, we're down to you know two real two or three really major promotions right now, and a bunch of indies. But um, had to be more fans back then. Um, you know, this, that's just the way it was. And uh, I know I know the buildings I went to and covered shows at were we are not small, and there were very large crowds at most of most of those those cards so um Vince can say it's bigger, and you know certainly it's got the national exposure that it really didn't have before because, like I said, wrestling was split up into territories all over the country, but um there are a lot of fans going back then. I'll just say that.
1: So, Mike, I, I grew up in New York, and I, I, I experienced both the Bruno's title reigns. You grew up in mid-Atlantic country at a time when it was pretty much, you know, w- uh, one of the premier wrestling territories in the country. And getting, you know, in a, going back to the last question, um, going living in New York, I could go to the Garden. I'd go to the Coliseum. I could go to the, the, the arena in Westchester. I think there was one on White Plains. If I wanted to, I could go to m- maybe – three or four uh, events a month. And I, I right now I'm in Virginia, but I, I bounce back and forth from here to Tampa, Florida. They mm-hmm. WWE might come to Tampa twice a year. And I mean, kind of give the listeners an idea of growing up at that time. How many times could you see wrestling a month? Well,
0: uh, it ran every week, every Friday night here in Charleston. Um, I would often go to shows, uh, Columbia, Tuesday night at Township Auditorium, plus tapings in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, uh, Wednesday, yeah, I think, yeah, Tuesday night in Raleigh. Okay, Monday night. Monday night was Greenville. Um, Tuesday night was Raleigh, North Carolina. Wednesday was TV tapings in Raleigh. Thursday was Norfolk, Virginia. Um, Friday was Richmond and Charleston. There were shows and a lot of spot shows in the smaller towns. So, you know, I would go to many shows and I would, like I said, I would go often, I would go to shows outside the territory because I was, um, I wasn't confined to the mid-Atlantic area. I saw TV from uh, what I did is I got like a crazy fan back then. Like I said, I was young. I got an antenna, put it on top of my house so I could pick up Georgia wrestling out of Atlanta. Um, on good nights, I could pick up Florida championship wrestling out of Tampa and listen to Gordon Soley. Saturday night, A Capital was the announcer for Georgia championship wrestling. Uh, Gordon was the uh, announcer for Florida championship wrestling and Bob Caudill down here in the Carolinas. So I could see you know, several TV shows every week um and there was wrestling going on i mean you know for me i i started my own fan club uh, back in the day it's called championship wrestling fan club so i had correspondence all over the country and really correspondence in you know england egypt crazy stuff right so I got I covered all of these territories and you know with results, news stories, whatever. So you know I was kind of like on top of uh, you know all of the wrestling back then, and um, like the Carolinas. So I I might be a little partial, but back in the '60s and the early '70s, the Carolinas had the greatest roster of tag teams in the country. George and Sandy Scott, George Becker and Johnny Weaver, uh, Rip and Sweet Hansen, the Bolos, you know, became the Assassins, uh, mm-hmm. Skull Murk and Rupert Nard, the Anderson brothers, Gene and Lars, and then Gene and Ole, Nelson Wall and Paul Jones, the great Malenko, and the Missouri Mauler, the Infernos, the Kentuckians, and the list goes on and on. Uh, rare was the occasion where a singles bout headlined the show during that period here in the Carolinas. Um, with the exception of a world or regional singles title defense, the, the majority of wrestling cards were headlined by tag teams. Of course, that all changed when George Scott took over as Booker in 73 and turned it into a big time singles territory with guys like Johnny Weaver, Wahoo, Blackjack Mulligan, Super Destroyer, and uh, the young Lions like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was it was an amazing territory, and I was just blessed to grow up in in, in an area like this.
2: Well, let me ask you. You, you talked about that's a perfect because you, you said how you got the satellite, you had the different channels in different territories. We've had a lot of stories on the show these last few years where people have talked about uh, you know moving from territory to territory and being a completely different gimmick or being a face in one area and a heel in another, Mm -hmm. and that really worked in the Territory days because people watching Georgia wrestling might not have had access to a star in the Carolinas or in Texas and so they could build them up, but somebody like you who was a lot more well-versed (laughs) What was that like watching somebody premiere on, say, Florida wrestling that you knew you had you had written about or seen in in a Texas clip or in the Carolinas and they're a completely different person? Is that did that make it better or or did that hurt the immersion at all?
0: Oh, for me, I loved it. I love seeing that type of thing. Like, say, um, I might watch uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling and see Billy and Jimmy Hines you know, maybe mid card guys. All right. A month later, a team shows up here as a masked red demons. Well, of course I knew it was Heinz brothers because I had followed the other territory, but here they are they their main event guys. You know, you put the hood on and you're in main events. I love that sort of thing. That happened a lot. Um, there was a lot of exchange, of course, between, uh, Florida and the Carolinas and Georgia and the Carolinas. I mean, we even, we even had some guys come from the WWWF down here and maybe they hit some main events with Bruno. Uh, maybe down here, they were just, you know, preliminary guys, but I knew their reputation. And um, to me, that made that only uh, made my fanship grow. Yeah. I love that. Of course, you know, back then I exposed a lot of those guys, you know, so-and-so were behind the mask, but that's what people got my newsletter for. And, you know, Casey, I did it in the magazines. They didn't mind. And I don't, I don't think the promoters really cared. Um, But
1: uh, yeah, I love that. I love the, the
0: territory, the territory
1: deal. Mike, another follow-up question, because it just, this jogged my memory. When uh, you were talking about like all the different territories you got when you were younger. So I started watching in 1968. It was WWF, WWWF. And then around yep. 75, there was a uh, New Jersey cable, sta- uh, not cable, UHF station, Channel 41, that mm-hmm. started showing NWA Hollywood. So I got to watch right. wrestling from the Olympic. And then a couple right. of years later, we got cable. And I got, you know, I got Gordon Soly and CWF. <laughs> and I got uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. And my my thing was I I couldn't get enough of it, even though I grew up in New York. I mean, I loved watching the other shows and it it makes me wonder now um, if, you know, you follow social media, if it's like almost you have to be loyal to WWE or AEW and you can't be you can't like both. And I guess I can't understand that. Why? Why people? It seems like you have to choose one. What do you think about that?
0: I think it's a shame. I mean, I, you know, obviously I follow social media, um, not as much as I used to, but it's sad to me. uh, It, you know, it it would, it would be hard for me to be a fan today. I thought about it a lot. I know exactly why I became a fan back in 1964, but if I were coming up today, I can honestly say, I, I don't know if I'd be a wrestling fan because all of the dynamics have changed. Uh, what I grew up and uh, what I loved back then, it uh, doesn't doesn't exist anymore. And you know, we we discussed heat. That's mm-hmm. one of the elements that I don't think exists anymore. It can't. Um, and the fact that uh, fans just can't enjoy the product for what it is. And, you know, like you said, they it's either one or the other. Um, I don't know. I didn't. You know, it's almost like uh, it it took you behind the curtain, and you, you know, you just didn't want to see how the magic was done. Um, It's an entirely, it's an entirely different product. Uh, You know, for me, it used to be, and for all other fans, it used to be black and white. There was no gray in between. But over the years, the lines became blurred. Um, Storylines back then developed over weeks and months, and sometimes even longer. It just doesn't happen anymore with the exception of something like the bloodline and that's been off the charts. Mm-hmm. But then again, you got an old school guy like Paul, Paul Heyman steering the ship. So I'm not even sure that today's fans could appreciate a Dory Funk Jr. Jack Briscoe Broadway. They'd be wanting them to see crazy spot after crazy spot with no realism involved. And, It's not a knock on today's version of wrestling, but facts are facts. Fans have been reeducated to appreciate a new style of wrestling or sports entertainment that is more like a rock concert with all the glitz and glamour. Um, Some of the athletes today are incredible, but, uh, you know, for me, I liked the realism and and the heat. They were very important uh, elements for me as a fan.
1: Mike, we were just talking about Vince McMahon, and you co-authored, co-authored the book Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, the real story mm-hmm. of Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation. So given your upbringing and involvement with the NWA, what, what compelled you to write about Vince McMahon? Well,
0: you know, by then, of course, I mean, it, 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 we presented in that book the story of, of the NWA as well as uh, WWF, WWE, whatever, um you know it's all part of the same story i mean and let's face it vince he became the biggest figure the biggest force in sports entertainment um he was also the most compelling and controversial figure as well so who else better to write about i mean love him or hate him he was a force of nature that changed the entire wrestling profession and um i give him credit he was a riverboat gambler who wasn't afraid to roll the dice obviously Right. and The book is basically an incredible story of this guy's lies to power and all the controversies and scandals he survived. Uh, you know, he truly has, was the last man standing.
2: Well, In previous interviews, you you, kind of hit it on. I want you to expand a little bit. You talked Mm -hmm. about the evolution of wrestling. I mean, all sports have evolved to some extent. We can't get through an episode without mentioning or talking about baseball. And, and you, you know, you grow up watching people like Tom Seaver or Nolan Ryan who are out there every fourth game plus relief, 300 plus innings a year, complete games, you know, once a couple times a month, it seems like. Now that I mean, pitchers have pitch counts, if they last past the sixth or seventh inning, it's considered a good start. Um, You know, obviously, football's changed with now there's more games in a season and, and things keep evolving. You've been in the wrestling business for better part of seven decades now. How has wrestling evolved in your eyes it, it, what you talked about with the glitz and the glamour, it, it, you can yeah. kind of expand on that a little bit, how wrestling evolved it, it, over, this, you know, as you mentioned, the, the recent evolutions.
0: Well, yeah, I kind of touched on that with the, um, with the sport becoming a, well, the big thing from kayfabe to, hey, you know, it's just, it's, it's theater, it's good theater, but we're just out here, uh, you know, presenting a, a, or simulating an athletic competition and like i said the athletes are great um back then like i said the, the dynamics were so different okay here's guys who traveled back then uh, worked six seven nights a week travel live out of their suitcases traveling cars from city to city and Practically, wrestling is their only life. Uh, And uh, I mean, things change now. Uh, Guys are working, you know, maybe two or three nights a week. There are no more 45, 60 minute matches that you would see back in the day. Um, And it's a different type of fan. Uh, To me, it's been a tremendous, it's a tremendous difference. Um, it's, you know, still have the colorful personalities, but they don't have what I call the true originals anymore. You know, back then you had guys like Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Johnny Valentine, Ole Anderson. I mean, those weren't gimmicks. Those were real people. Uh, today, you know, it's, these guys are just portraying, uh, characters. I remember being at WrestleMania some years ago and was there for the entire week and saw the guys in a different environment, you know, all in street clothes, no wrestling thing going on. But they, it looked cookie cutter. You know, they all looked the same. I mean, there was no, you know, there's no guys that really stood out like a blackjack mulligan. You know, you could spot him a mile away. It right. was like cookie, cookie colored, cookie cutter guys. And that's probably the best way I can explain it. Uh, guys, um back then were you know that's who they were.
2: Well let me ask you to kind of expand on that too. The, the there's been some some stories. We've talked a couple a couple of them on uh on the show. Some pretty high profile young talent in the last year or two, especially with social media being as prevalent where you know, anybody with a phone can share their immediate thoughts and it doesn't have to be an interview for them. Several high profile young talents have made it very clear that they don't listen openly. I'm not taking advice from these fossils that we work with. Like I already know what I'm doing or I like my style better. I mean, Mm -hmm. what do you say to the, to the young talent? Like you, you mentioned AEW earlier, you know, you have Dean Malenko and Jerry Lynn and Arn Anderson and uh in tully blanchard sting you've got all this 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 talent in the locker room and you go now i'm good guys thanks i know what i'm doing like what are your thoughts on does that have an impact on on the the product as well where a lot of the young talent comes in thinking they're good
0: well they better have a good reason that they're good because um unless they unless they can it's all about drawing money okay that's what the business has always been about um a lot of these guys come in like you say, thinking uh, you know they want their spots, and nobody needs to show them anything, but I can tell you for a fact that they don't get the education that they got back in the day. Um, for the most part they a lot of that education for the boys happened traveling from town to town every single night, and faces traveling with faces heels traveling with heels. There was so much knowledge and information dispensed on those road trips. I mean, it was really like sitting under a learning tree for a lot of the young workers. And I don't think they get that today. I mean, um, uh, you know, sadly, a lot of them won't even make it past the front door with that kind of attitude. And um, I know times have changed and they're looking for a different type of sports entertainer today. And that's not to say someone with great wrestling ability and a gift for Gab won't make it, but they would have to adapt to a strict style that the company, be it WWE or, or, w, or AEW, is looking for.
1: Mike, I think it was actually you, or I believe, were on Rick Flair's show. And it was Rick, and you were just talking about this. Rick Clare said that he thought the best wrestling training school ever was in the backseat of the car traveling between matches. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, I can only imagine the the wisdom and the knowledge that, like, if you were a, an eager young wrestler, like you said, I'm I'm, I'm here in the Ernie Ladd sitting under the learning tree. Um, <laughs> <Yep. were> you, <laughs> I know I do a much better Stu Hart than I do Ernie Ladd. but um, so were you. Were you ever in the car for uh, one of these trips? Not unless you're talking
0: about a uh, Ric Flair limo. <laughs> and uh, I don't think a lot of wrestling knowledge was being imparted at that point. <laughs> I think it was a lot of a lot of styling and profiling going on. No,
2: Women, really. Yeah.
0: Um, they, um, I, I've heard so many stories from the guys like the Anderson brothers and a lot of the undercard guys too. That's how they. That's how they learned the trade. I mean, they, you know, back then you get you go to uh, wasn't a wrestling school like there is now. You might you might go to the YMCA, and you know, a couple of the old guys, the old uh, uh, veterans, would take the young guys in and stretch them and work them over for a month or two, and then take them out on the road. But they'd all tell me that most of the learning, most of the things they learned in the wrestling business. They did learn in the backseat of a car because they listened. They were eager to learn. And, uh, you know, they would go over matches. And, oh, it sounds like a cool move to, to use. And, and they would get all of their ideas. And that's how the guys who really made it in the business, um, they came up like that. It, it, was, it was traveling, like I said. They lived out of a suitcase, traveled six, seven nights a week, um, and became very experienced in a short amount of time. But they did that. Uh, they did that year round.
2: Well, you talked about. You, you actually said it. How everybody's kind of the same. It, it's my opinion, by and large, the per, WWE Performance Center. You mentioned the training school is very cookie cutter. Uh, I mean, we've we've seen some. I don't want to say horror stories but for lack of a better term we've seen some horror stories talented wrestlers that have made it elsewhere in the country and the world coming to the WWE and and flaming out because they tried to shoehorn them into the performance center style and not everybody's built for that but do you see someone like a Harley Race showing up to Orlando today and even getting a look
0: so I don't think we'll we'll ever see another Harley Race uh, would even get a look today in the, the WWE Performance Center. Uh, certainly not in this era of wrestling. Um, guys like Harley, Wahoo, Valentine—they're what I call what I call true originals. Um, they were men who lived by their own set of rules and just could not be replicated. Sadly, those guys probably wouldn't make it past the front door. Um, even a even a charismatic guy like Dusty would would have a hard time. I'm afraid. Uh, times have changed, and they're looking for a different type of sports entertainer today. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, would, it would be very rare for one of the guys back then to you know, have, have made it in today's business. Uh, just, uh, I don't think they would be able to adapt to that kind of style. I really don't.
1: Mike, we we kind of grew up in in wrestling around the same time. I saw my first show in 1968, and one of the things that was quite prevalent. And you mentioned Homer Odell when I started uh, watching in 1968. He managed uh, Bull Ramos in the WWF, but yeah, there were so him. many. Uh, we had uh, you know Fred Blassie. Well, originally when I started watching, we had uh, Wild Wild Red Berry. Bobby Davis, we had Homer, you know, then we had uh, Lou Albano, Grand Wizard, Fred Blasey, just so many of them. And it's kind of a lost art. And I look at a guy like Cesaro, uh, who's a phenomenal, I mean, phenomenal talent. But I think to a certain extent, he's held back because of his, his lack of mic skills. And I think how much better he would be if he had a Lou Albano or a Fred Blasey or a Bobby Davis or a Jimmy Hart in his corner. And what's your opinion of, of managers and, and the current lack thereof?
0: Oh, to me, managers were one of the most integral parts of the business, uh, for the first 25 or 30 years that I covered it, um, with their gift of gas and the colorful attire and, uh, you know, usually assortment of foreign objects. They just, they just added a, an extra dimension to the entire business that, that element's missing today. Um, it's just a sad commentary that they're not valued like they once were, um, without them uh, many stars would have never had the chance to shine Um, and it was it was i guess it was vince who really dropped the managerial part of the business a number of years ago and ironically his dad late vince mcmahon senior was one of the business's biggest proponents of managers like you said in the early days of the old wwf um and you know, a lot of these managers, like you mentioned, Homer, most of them, in fact, are ex-wrestlers and, you know, pretty good entertainers in their own light who could still tussle in the ring when the situation called for it. But their job, pure and simple, was to get their wrestler over. Um, newer fans of the business might not even understand the concept of a manager because there is not in the traditional sense of the word. And, uh, you know, we had we had care. I mean, these guys were really characters too. Like Gen- Colonel Homer Odell, who later became promoted to General Homer Odell. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you had Gen- gentleman Saul Weingaroff, who manages on the Bronners. You had J.C. Dyke with the Infernos. You had George Tutten Harris, Playboy Gary Hart, um, uh, and these are like mostly guys from the '60s and '70s who later gave away too. Uh, a new generation of managers like Bobby Heenan, J.J. Dillon, Mr. Fuji, Paul Bearer, Oliver Humperdinck, Jimmy Hart, Jim Cornette, Paulie Dangerously, and the likes. Um, and I will say that even though he's not referred to as a manager anymore, Paul Heyman is as good as any any of the anyone. Right. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: he, the, he's the guy who's largely responsible for the Bloodline storyline, which. Man, it's been as good as anything WWE has come up with in recent years. Um, but he's no stranger, you know, to that. It was Paulie that charted the course in ECW and changed the landscape of the of the business and paved the way for WWE's Attitude Era, which you know led to one of the hottest runs ever in the wrestling business. Um, so, to me. Yeah, I, I love managers back then. They just added so much to the product, and uh, it's just unfortunate they're not youth anymore because some of the guys you mentioned, Cicero, uh, they could really have have benefited uh, from a manager. And another guy I've talked about in the past is Shelton Benjamin, who I think is one of the yes. wrestlers on the roster for years now. Um, as good as he was in the wing, you know, he had a hard time communicating. He just had a little problem with the charisma deal, and that held him back. I think if he'd have been brought in with a manager, with a mouthpiece, um, it made all the difference in the world for him.
1: You know, I'm, I'm going to have a, I had a flashback of uh, back in the day, uh, I guess it was around 1970, the, they brought in Crusher Verdue to uh, challenge Bruno. And, you know, mm-hmm. Crusher Verdue had the personality of shredded wheat, but he had Lou Albano and it, yeah. it worked because, you know, the thing is, a lot of these guys, they're going to have the, you know, like in Verdu's case, he was a strong man, but not all these guys are going to have the, the, the elocution skills. And, and the manager did, maybe didn't have like Lou Albano <laughs> was not the greatest wrestler, but boy, exactly. what a massive guy had. And, and it worked, oh, really? but I, I don't understand why they, they stopped doing that.
0: Yeah, would Abdullah the butcher have been such a big star attraction that he not had a mouthpiece with him around to do the talking? Otherwise he would have sounded like Michael Jackson on the mic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Abby back then had that kind of a voice. And I think I think people would have turned and said, What's wrong with him? you know, and he would have never been the monster that he was, the monster heel.
2: I mean one of the biggest programs wrestling has ever seen was the build up to WrestleMania 3 with Hogan and Andre and could you you know you think you sell 93,000 people if Andre's cutting his own promos
0: no way yeah no way the 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 managers were so so vital back then but uh really don't don't really exist anymore
2: No, not really. It, you, you know, it's funny. I want to kind of transition as we as we mm-hmm. wind down. We talked a lot about wrestling. Uh, there's one thing Benny and I, like I mentioned, Benny and I, we always find ways to get baseball into the show. Mm-hmm. We also always find a way to get food into the show. And, and now I have... I've, I've, you know, we, we follow you on social media. We have obviously the intro. We have enormous respect for you and your career, and your magnificent writing skills. But you also your social media is very prevalent with food. So I have to know I've got family down there. I know Benny and I, we talked about it before the show. Uh, if any of our listeners are traveling through South Carolina, where do they go <laughs> to get some of that legendary South Carolina barbecue?
0: All right. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. All right,
1: my favorite, and it has been for years. Who's that? I said I'm writing this down. I got my pen. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh,
0: My favorite, and has been for years, uh, the Bessinger family of barbecue restaurants across the state of South Carolina. Uh, They've been around for decades. You've got Melvin's Barbecue on James Island, which was in, which is in Charleston. You've got Bessinger's Barbecue is in the West Ashley section of Charleston. You've got Piggy Park in Irmo, which is outside of Columbia. And you have Maurice's Barbecue in Columbia. They're all part of that family chain and equally good. Um, also, in Charleston, we have Rodney Scott's. And Lewis Barbecue, both in downtown Charleston, very good. Um, Duke's Barbecue, around the state, very good. Great buffet in Charleston. Um, Home Team Barbecue and Martin's Barbecue, both in Charleston, also good. If you're up around God's Country in Clemson, the Smokin' Pig is excellent. Uh, If you're in the Myrtle Beach on the Grand Strand, You've got Simply Southern, uh, Dickie's Barbecue, Little Pigs Barbecue, the Barbecue House. And if you're in Merle's Inlet, Judy Boone's has a tremendous buffet that includes some great barbecue. So I know that's a lot of restaurants, but they're all very good, very good, bar, great barbecue. You can't go wrong. And also Dickie's Barbecue in Myrtle Beach. I don't know if I mentioned that. So that gives you a good choice.
1: Well, I, I have to check my uh, my Dan and Benny contract to see if there's a uh, a relocation clause. <laughs> I think I know where I'm going to be living next. Um, you know, I'll weigh 500 pounds. But um, now, hey. Mike, have you ever gone to when – I, when I was traveling from Florida to Virginia here, I did stop at Bucky's. I experienced Bucky's for the first time <laughs> in my life. I have oh, to know what you think about Bucky's. I haven't been to Bucky's yet. The, oh. the closest one, the
0: closest one to me, is in Florence, South Carolina. But um, my son has been, and he, you know, he, he they rave about it. He, he said it's great. Um, everything I've heard, is like was well, like a mini vacation. You know, um, mm-hmm. you probably want to spend the day there.
2: But
0: that, that's on my list uh, for sure. And we've got
2: his, a lot of good restaurants. we a lot of good looks, uh, My wife is yeah. from Texas, and that was a huge deal when they announced that Bucky's was expanding <laughs> out of the state. And uh-huh. then, you know, yeah. I, we were driving i my family's in south carolina i remember driving the interstate and we saw all the signs for like bucky's starting it you know how because they're yeah. they're famous too for their their how well they they pay their employees yeah and all these hourly and and salary signs and i was like why is bucky's advertising so heavy because you know once <laughs> you start getting towards south carolina every other billboard is is south of the border so i know yeah. you know, I'm thinking I'm like, man, there's more Bucky's signs than there is south of the border. And she looked it up. And it's like, oh, they're going to open one in, off the Florence exit. It's like, oh, that's yeah. going to change the game because there's a lot of stuff Bucky's has yeah. that would be very popular in South Carolina that you couldn't get until it opened. Oh yeah,
0: oh, yeah. it's it's open now and it's it's business is booming from what I understand. Um, uh, you know, I back in the day when we'd go on vacation, um, the places to go and this, this is a long time ago. Places like Stuckey's and Horns, mm-hmm. you know, up the side of the road from here to Florida, and that was always a huge treat. Can you imagine today kids going on vacation and stopping at a place like Bucky's? I mean, crazy.
2: Think, think about how uh, how different some of the road stories we've heard through the years, Benny, would be if uh, some oh. of the some of the talent was stopping at a Bucky's at one in the morning instead <laughs> of a corner gas station where. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the Phillips 66
2: Yeah, you know how how different hearing hearing uh you know the, the the Road Warriors or somebody talking about <laughs> eating kolaches instead of chili dogs at one in the morning.
0: <laughs> yeah, they used to um, guys down here. You stop at like at a Seven Eleven or uh, you know to get their you know bologna and and their bread and their beer and uh, get ready for those
1: bologna blowouts on the road. <laughs> The three B's. <laughs> three B's. Yeah, yes. I tell you what, my, my son Chris loves beef jerky. I have never seen so much beef jerky in my life. <laughs> I I think if like, all the beef jerky at that Bucky's was linked together, they could have built an interstate <laughs> like the California.
0: No kidding. What is the thing with beef jerky now? I mean it's like, uh, it's like it a
1: delicacy. Twenty eight dollars a pound. Unbelievable. Worth every
2: penny though, Benny.
1: It, no, actually,
2: it was. I, that, that I will
0: say. <laughs> yeah, the load stories would would have uh, changed quite a bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a little biased too because uh, I'm here in Virginia, and they just announced that's the next location. They're they're breaking that's ground. Nice. If the, I think they may have already, but off the 64, about an hour from the house, so
0: may hey, be worth the road
2: trip. Oh yeah, no, I, you kidding? I, I my wife's going to spend more time up there than she does with me when that place opens.
0: <laughs> it's like a mini vacation, like mini Disney World.
2: It's crazy, <laughs> basically.
1: Like the Hall of Fame, you got to s- schedule two days at Bucky's.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh lord, that's funny. Well, as we wrap up, Mike, again, thank you so much for your time. I want to give you. Uh, one, the last word. If you have anything, um, anything you want to hype or, or pitch, but but really, also, what does the future hold for you? Any any projects coming up? You want to?
0: Oh, let's see. At this stage, um, yeah. At this stage, I really don't look much into the future. I just take it day by day. <laughs> That's uh, fair. I've, I've I've been retired now for this time has just flown, man. I've been retired now for seven and a half years. And uh, believe me, retirement's a good place to live. It really is. i I don't I honestly don't keep up with the wrestling business like I used to. Um, I do mostly nostalgia-based articles um, these days. And although I retired from the posting courier seven years ago, after nearly forty years of that paper, I have continued writing my weekly Sunday column, and it's thirty four years now. And, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in ordering my books, they can, they can, I think they can find them all on Amazon. I stay pretty active on Facebook and Twitter, so you can reach me that way as well. And it's email by Mike Mooneyham at gmail.com. And it's been a, it's been a really fun ride, man. I You know, I've been blessed to have so many friends over my 60 plus years in the business. Friends have range from Luthez to Ric Flair and everyone in between. Um, and it's really a reason I, I wrote Final Bell a few years ago as a tribute to some of the guys and some of my friends who have passed on. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 been a, it's been a great ride. So well. many so many friends, and you know I've lost a lot of them, of course, but still got some around and we, you know we keep up and um, and reminisce about the good old days
2: absolutely you got to enjoy it while while it can i mean it seems like we had uh, far too often we start to show with an immemorium section from yeah. people just uh you know seem to be leaving leaving faster than they're joining now but, Mike, thank you again so much for your time. Benny, before we wrap up, uh, final thoughts you. to you. Any, any parting words?
1: Well, I want to thank Mike, first of all. This is great. And, uh, you know, we've had guys like Ivan Potsky and Dominic DiNucci on our show. And, I, I'm, you know, while we're interviewing them, I'm literally pinching myself because it's so surreal. You know, these are guys that I watched, you know, when I was a kid. And now I'm actually getting to chat with them. And I— I can only imagine, you know, Mike being in the business for the length of time and the depth that he has, the the kind of experiences and friendships that he has. So I think it's just a great thing.
0: Yeah, it's very blessed. It's wonderful, you know. I, I when I when I walked off of that field fifty nine sixty years ago and turned on that TV set, I, I I'll never regret it. I was hooked. 1964, my first card. You know how many matches were on the show?
2: Four,
1: three, yes, a right. okay.
0: two, two tag teams and one single. The opening match: Tim Woods against Pedro Godoy. Tim was Tim was only like a year or two into the business out of Michigan State, and you know a few years later became Mr. Wrestling. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the second match was a tag team match. A midget tag team match of all things, right? That was very intriguing to a young fan. Chief Little Hawk and Lord Littlebrook against a uh, supposed Nazi brother tag team, Fritz and Hans Hermann. That was quite compelling, you know? Um,
2: Nazi midgets is a a sentence I never thought I'd hear. Nazi midgets,
0: yes. With a, replete with the swastika and everything else. Oh, jeez!
2: Yeah. No, you, uh, you.
0: Probably for a lot of reasons that wouldn't fly today.
2: You no, know? No, no, I would imagine not. I would imagine <laughs> not, no. And, many, uh, <laughs> many of the foreign heels of the day would uh, would not make it to <laughs> no, today's television. No, no, no.
0: No, not even Baron Von Rush. <laughs> But But the main event that night was. Haystacks Calhoun and Johnny Weaver against the, the mass bolos. And, uh, and there was just great stuff. You know, I was there every week after that was, uh, appointment watching. And, and speaking of Tim, uh, Tim was one of the reasons that I wrote my last book, Final Bell. Uh, Tim had always been a, a faithful reader of my writing over the years and, every time one of the boys would pass away, um, we'd call each other. And he asked me, one, one day he asked me, who's gonna write my obituary once I'm gone? Well, I had to think long and hard about an answer. And uh, sadly, you know, I said, well, Tim, if you know, anything ever happens to you, I'm here. So sad, sadly, Tim passed away a few, just a few years later. And as promised, I gave him a befitting send off the following week in my column. And, uh, you know, I've really lost too many good friends in the business. Many were childhood heroes who made a lasting impression on, on me for sure. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Final Bell. And of course, Tim's included in that. Um, but yeah, a lot of good ones are gone. You. don't want to end this on a somber note but i just thought i'd throw that in
2: now i'm it's unfortunately the the yeah. way of the world but you mentioned final bell and earlier we talked about uh <clears throat> excuse me earlier we talked about sex lies and headlocks both available on amazon for everyone out there check them out that's uh, sex lies and headlocks and final bell mike Mooneyham on amazon Uh, But, Mike, again, thank you so much for your time. I know we've been huge fans of your writing, so this means a lot to get a chance to talk to you. So for Mike Mooneyham, for the Long Island Ice B, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spaschano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.